And now we come to our message this morning. It is uh, a time that we continue our series on the life of King David, a man after God's own heart, and this is part seven. The title of our message this morning, Mercy on the Run, based on 1 Samuel chapter 24, verses 1 to 13. Now in our series on David, our hero continues to find him continues to find himself on the run. And even though he has done nothing wrong and has, has trained a formidable group of men, he still needs to hide. David is happy to engage the foreign enemy like the Philistines to defend his people. But he does not want to fight Saul and his army. The fact that Saul had more soldiers and more firepower would not have been the main reason. He has defeated larger armies in the past. And uh, so this wasn't the issue. He simply doesn't want to fight fellow Israelites and their anointed king and the, the result being a civil war. The only alternative is to run and hide like a coward which he wasn't. But what if he is given a perfect opportunity to get rid of the king and with the least amount of bloodshed? And that's what the passage before us is really all about. While David and his men hide in a cave, he is presented with the perfect opportunity to kill Saul, claim the throne and elevate himself all the way to the top. Yet he declines. Now in this life-defining moment, we're allowed to peer a little deeper into the heart of this man. Whether David would reign or, or not was never in doubt. He's already been anointed. He's already had the promise of God. But how he would reign and, and what type of king he would be, that is what is at stake here. For for me, there are many peaks in in the life of King David, but for me, this is the the Everest in David's life. He cannot climb any higher than these. So it's here in the passage today, it's easy to see why the Lord called David a man after my own heart. And even as we admire the future king of Israel, and this story is is about him and something that happened historically, the story is here in the scriptures so that we, as the people of God, can learn from it. God has a lesson for us. And and Because what is the lesson? What is the situation? Well, we might also find ourselves wanting to settle a score, to cut corners, especially with those who have perhaps wronged us in the past. So what will we do if we are presented with an opportunity to do so? Well, our first heading this morning, consider then your situation. And we're going to read these verses once more so that we understand what the lesson is from verses 1 to the first part of verse 4. After Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told David is in the desert of En Gedi. So Saul took 3,000 
able young men from all Israel and set out to look for David and his men in, in, the, in the crags of the wild goats. He came to the sheep foals along the way. A cave was there and Saul went in to relieve himself. David and his men were far back in the cave. The men said, This is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. So David and his men are in the desert region of, of En Gedi. En Gedi is, is a strategic location on the, on the western shore of the Dead Sea. About 50 kilometres southeast of Jerusalem. They have gone there because it is a strategic place. There is, a, there is shelter, there is water, there's food in the form of wild goats, fresh food at that, and protection. Now, about three and a half years ago, I was in Israel with my daughter and, and joining another church group. And we visited En Gedi. It is one of the go-to places if you ever get to visit uh, Israel. This, uh, it is an oasis and uh, it attracts about one million visitors every year, or it did anyway before, before COVID. There are certainly many hills and caves and wild goats. There is also a flowing stream of fresh water. It's a beautiful place. Which, which is very different to the rest of, of the, the countryside. And while there, you cannot help but ponder on the situation that David and his men found themselves some 3,000 years ago. And here are, here are some pictures while, while, I was, while we were there. Um, as you can see, that is an actual flowing stream and some of the people walking along, along the top. Um, and then um, in, in, the, in the following shot that uh, you will see, there is a, you will see a picture of uh, a wild goat uh, jumping up and down. Some, there's quite a few of them there. And then, of course, you get a picture of the, of the, of the, the cliff side and some of the scattered caves that are, that are found in, in that particular location. There are absolutely caves everywhere uh, in that place. Now, when Saul learns that David is in the desert of En Gedi, he takes 3,000 of his finest soldiers and goes after David. While they are in the wilderness hunting for David, nature calls and Saul goes into the cave to relieve himself. But unknown to him, David and his men are hiding deeper in the cave, in the very same cave. Saul, who was looking for an opportunity to kill David, is all alone in a very vulnerable position, as you can imagine. But, so now David has an opportunity to kill Saul. Back to us. In the socio-political climate that we find ourselves in, in today's 
day and age. It's very easy to find culprits and victims. Someone has wronged us, our family, our faith, our nationality, our skin colour. Then an opportunity will present itself for us to get even. We might even have friends who encourage us, as we say, who egg us on to do something about it, to get our pound of flesh, as it were. Like it or not, how we react, what we do at that moment defines us because it will reveal the true nature, the deep nature of our heart. And you don't have to look very far to see that in our day, mercy is indeed in very short supply. But this is nothing new. This has been going on for a while. Let me tell you a story. Um, one of the, I read this, uh, one of the worst cases of hatred uh, that I suppose you and I would see was found in a will uh, written in 1935 by a Mr. Donoghue. It says, and I quote in the will, it says, Unto my two daughters, Frances Marie and Denise Victoria, by reason of their unfilial attitude toward a doting father, I leave the sum of one dollar to each and a father's curse. May their lives be fraught with misery, unhappiness and poignant sorrow. May their deaths be soon and of a lingering, malignant and torturous nature. End of quote. But the, 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 then the, the, the last line of the will is so vicious that it reads, May their souls rest in hell and suffer the torments of the condemned for eternity. End of quote. Imagine that. Imagine that. That's a father to their children. Wow, what a situation that must have been like. But you multiply all the sick hearts that are out there and, and you remove mercy, remove forgiveness, remove grace. What do you think is going to happen? We end up with a very sick society indeed. Challenge for us as the people of God, as Christians, is that we, we don't want to swim with the tide, with the current. We need to swim against it. To, to go against the prevailing tide of hatred and live by God's standard and not the world's. Don't follow the headlines. Don't, don't listen to those who are continuing to egg you on to, to get your pound of flesh and to, to find justice, to seek revenge. How we do this is that we start to humbly recognise our utter sinfulness before a holy God and before whom we are all guilty. That's it, that is our starting point. 
Now let's move to our second point. What else do we need to do when we are offered a situation to take revenge? The second point is that we need to consider our example in verses, the second part of verse 4 to verse 7. Then David crept up unnoticed and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterwards David was conscience stricken for having cut off a corner of his robe. And he said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lay my hand on him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. And with these words, David sharply rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went his way. His men, David's men, quite a few of them, could hardly contain their delight when they saw what was happening. This would be, this is because remember, this is not just David's plight, because this, for the rest of these men, these were the, remember the dirty dozen and the rest, this would be the end of their troubles. And their lives as runaways in hiding, it will come to an end. Because Saul was the main cause of their predicament. It will all be over with the slit of a throat. These were all trained killers. Most of them would have been trained by David himself. And because of this, they couldn't simply appeal to to David's courage and strength because... They knew there was no one there, there was no one there as brave as David. So they try another way to get him to do something. They, they try a different tack by appealing to David's faith in God. And they do this with some creative popular theology by quoting a passage that is, unsurprisingly, not found anywhere else in the Old Testament to justify their position. It's a bit like people coming to you and quoting, you know, those well-worn verses like uh, God helps those who help themselves, that type of thing, right? And that's, that's what they're doing. By the way, that last verse is not found in, in the Bible. Now, as he moves towards Saul, his men must have held their breath. You know, wanting their leader to finish the job once and for all. But he, as he reached out, knife in hand, he goes not for Saul's throat, but to cut the edge of the royal robe that was lying on the ground. Now, you just imagine the, the skill involved in, in doing this so, with so much stealth. He was good. David was good at what what he did. But also imagine the disappointment in these men who had already sacrificed everything for him. They would be shaking their heads and say, no. They they would not be admiring at that moment, they would not be admiring David's tremendous skill. They would be talking about the anticlimax that it was. Why take such a risk for so little result? Why risk it? Yet, even for this 
smallest of gestures, this was enough for David to be grief-stricken for his action. More than that, he proceeds to tear into his men for their intention to harm Saul. Yes, yes, he, he might have agreed with the men that, he, that it was God who had placed Saul at their mercy. This was no coincidence. God had allowed that to happen. But the mere fact that God had provided an opportunity does not mean that God intends us to exercise it. Let me, there's a principle here, and that is that God often tests his servants to reveal the true state of their hearts. Um, some examples, uh, we have Adam and Eve, for example. In Adam and Eve, it was the forbidden fruit in the garden. For Jonah, for Jonah, it was a ship in, in Joppa, all ready to sail for, for Tarshish. And there are many others. God was not facilitating Adam and Eve's or the prophets or indeed the, the prophets' rebellion. But rather, God was testing their faithfulness. God was testing the command that he had given them. For Adam and Eve, don't eat. For Jonah, go to Nineveh. And I think that the principle is this. this that, and I'm quoting somebody else here, they say, they say, an open door is not in itself proof of God's will. Just because you see an open door doesn't mean that you should walk through it. First and foremost, follow and do God's will. Our next setting is, what we need to do is consider your enemy, in verses 8 to 11, consider your enemy. Then David went out of the cave and called out to Saul, My Lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. And he said to Saul, Why do you listen when men say, David is bent on harming you? This day you have seen with your own eyes how the Lord gave you into my hands in the cave. Some urged me to kill you. That was David's men. But I spared you. I said, I will not lay my hand on my Lord because he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, here, I have, a, I have a piece of your robe in my hand. I cut off the corner of your robe but did not kill you. See, there is nothing in my hand to indicate that I am guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. I have not wronged you, but you are hunting me down to take my life. You might not know this, but in this section, uh, David begins what is his longest unbroken speech recorded in the whole of the Bible, what you have in front of you here. And his speech is designed to subdue, to calm, uh, rather than inflame Saul's hostility. And, and while he does this, every, he, he does everything possible as far as it depends on him to be at peace with Saul, he does not hold back by telling him the truth. 
How does he do this? He actually says to Saul, you are hunting me down to take my life. You know, sometimes we have a tendency to to lessen the enemy's guilt by saying, oh, that's okay, it was nothing. No, they need to see and be confronted by their behaviour, wrongful behaviour. But we need to do this with respect. We don't want to lose our temper while we're doing it, but we need to declare what the issue is. You can't hide it. Don't dismiss it as nothing. Now, as far as David's men were concerned, for David's men, there wasn't a lot of difference in in who your enemy was, whether it was Saul or whether it was the Philistines. But for David, there was a very big difference. He even addresses Saul as, my lord, the king. But, but, but how could David bow down to such a despot as, as Saul? Well, for starters, Saul was his best friend, Jonathan's father. More than that, he was also, up, up to, at, even at this stage, he was still his father-in-law. More than that, and this is the clincher, is that Saul was the Lord's anointed. He certainly didn't deserve to be respected, but that's what mercy does. Now, I just have to say something here. Um, There is mercy and there is grace. We hear those terms quite a lot throughout the scriptures. Mercy and grace are two vital Christian terms whose meanings uh, are often mentioned together, but they, but they are often misunderstood. Mercy, you see, is the act of withholding deserved punishment, while grace is the act of endowing unmerited, unmerited favour. In short, in his mercy, God does not give us the punishment that we deserve, namely hell. While in his grace, God gives us something we do not deserve, namely heaven. And I think that explains a little more the difference between grace and mercy, even though, as you can see, they are very much related. And the Bible uses many terms to describe unbelievers that might, uh, and the terms that the Bible uses towards unbelievers might offend a lot of people today. Again, in the current climate, um, in the Bible they're referred to as, as pagans, as slaves to sin, condemned, enemies even. This is why the Apostle Paul does not hold back when he says in Romans 5.10, this is what he says, For if, while we were God's enemies, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Yes, once upon a time, 
it wasn't that we were just not very nice people that God didn't like. No, we were actually considered enemies of God. That's pretty, that's pretty serious, right? Enemies of God. If you are not a believer, you're an enemy of God. That's, that's pretty serious. But in his mercy, he, resist, he resisted harming us. And if you're still alive, he's still resisting harming you. He is showing you, he's giving you something that you don't deserve, his, his grace. And through Jesus Christ, he moved first. He took that first step. While we were his enemies, we were reconciled through, in him, to him, through the death of his son. So he moved first, and, and now that we are in, we have been reconciled for those who are now his children, who believe in him, in his name, are in a relationship with him, he is now committed to us in his covenant love through Christ. This is why, as children of God, it, it puts us on a higher plane. We cannot, again, we cannot behave as the rest of the world does. Because ultimately, everything we do, we must always consider the Lord. And this is our final point. Consider the Lord, verses 12 to 13. This is what David says to Saul. May the Lord judge between me and you. And may the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me. But my hand will not touch you. As the old saying goes, from evildoers come evil deeds. So my hand will not touch you. So for David, by raising his hand against the Lord's anointed, he was going against the same Lord who anointed Saul. Even a despot like Saul was still anointed by God. This is why David, rather than committing a sin, committed himself into the hands of God. He left vengeance into the hands of God. And this is something that is a little bit hard for us to sometimes understand because we, wanna, we want justice done now. We don't want justice delayed. We want justice enacted and forced. The Apostle Paul said this to the, to the believers who were starting to be persecuted in the Roman capital. And this is what he wrote to them in Romans chapter 12, verse 19. Do not take revenge my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. Now when this truth starts to resonate in our hearts, we, we, we start to understand that ultimately it's not really about us. 
There is a higher purpose to which we commit ourselves, particularly when there's a lot of injustice around, just like our Saviour, Jesus Christ. Let me take you back to our trip to Engedi. The tour guide who was a, a believer drew our attention to an acacia tree beside the walkway beside the walkway to the, to, the, to the oasis. And this acacia tree, this particular species, had a very long spikes. They were about two to three inches long, as you can appreciate that in the, in the picture. And just in, at the bottom of the picture, you can see a hand. So you can see how long these spikes uh, truly were. Now, he remarked... Um, that the crown of thorns on Jesus' head would most likely have come from a similar plant. Just think about it. Those two to three inch spikes being threaded into a crown and then placed on Jesus' head. Add to this, the surrounding wilderness of, of Engedi was also a reminder of when Jesus was led to the wilderness for 40 days. There he was tempted by Satan and there he was offered a shortcut to greatness. A shortcut that did not involve pain, it did not involve suffering. Thankfully, our Lord declined because before he would be crowned with glory and honour, he accepted to be crowned with a crown of thorns. His example and sacrifice should at the very least give us a, a godly perspective in our trials, in the trials that we face each and every day. This is why we need to consider the Lord. Now, uh, there's a story that comes from the American Civil War after the, after the Civil War had, had finished, the commander of the South, uh, Robert E. Lee, visited, he was a believer, and he, he visited a, a, a Kentucky lady who took him to the remains in her estate of a grand old tree in front of her house. And there she bitterly cried that its limbs and trunk had been destroyed by the federal artillery fire. To put it into context, right? never, mind, never mind the untold misery that the nation endured where 600,000 men had died during the war. Never mind the fact that so many survivors of those soldiers lost so much. They lost limbs and, and it would never be the same again. Never mind all that. Here she was complaining about the mangled tree. She looked to Lee for a word condemning the North or at least sympathising with her loss. And after a brief silence, Lee said to her, cut it down, my dear madam, and forget about it. It is better, you see, to forgive the injustice of the past than to allow them to remain and let bitterness take root and poison the rest of their life. I'm sure you and I know a lot of people like that. 
And there are some people listening to this right now that perhaps need to cut down, just cut it down, some old mangled trees from your past and forget them. And today is a challenge from the Lord for each of us to let go of all our thoughts of vengeance or revenge and extend mercy and accept grace. If you are dealing with a hurt, lay it down at his feet, forgive it and forget it. And if you have hurt others and you know it, do the right thing and go to them and make it right. Do it for yourself, do it for your church, but most of all, do it for the glory of God. Let me leave you with the the words of the, the first psalm that we read this morning, Psalm 103. These are the words from King David. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love. Psalm 103, right? He will not always accuse, nor will he harbour his anger forever. Listen to what he says. He says, he does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Amazing words, right? From a man who lived it, who knew it, who sang about it, and his God used him to teach us what it's what it's like to show mercy and to accept it as well. May God bless us. In Jesus' name. Amen.